The following lecture was delivered at the 10th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Lisa Aiken will now present a lecture entitled Banishing Barbie, Smashing the Myths about Judaism and Feminism. My talk this morning is about Judaism and feminism. And for those of you who are either too young to remember or were like on drugs the whole time that the feminist movement was happening back in the late 60s or 1970s, I thought I'd begin my talk by kind of doing a review of what the feminist movement was all about, why it began, and what its goals were. So typically when we have isms, there are Jews behind them. Feminism was no exception. There is a woman named Gloria Steinem who considered herself half Jewish. Her father was Jewish. And the other woman that was her uh, sidekick was Betty Friedan. So these two women decided that women had been oppressed long enough. There are certainly many, many examples historically and on a global level of women being oppressed, being oppressed financially, being oppressed physically, being oppressed in terms of rights. By the way, how many of you know how long women have had the right to vote in the United States? Anybody guess? It's been about 100 years. So until 100 years ago, a woman was not allowed to vote in the United States. In many states in the United States, certainly until the 1950s, and I think in a few southern states, even until the 1960s, a husband had the right to, to rape his wife. In many states, for a very, very long time, women were considered the husband's personal chattel. They were his property. And we can see from this that uh, the beginning of the women's movement had a very uh, long history because in many countries, Women were not only considered property, they were uh, financially subservient to men. They, in places like China, for example, girls would have their feet bound because what was more important than having small feet? Being crippled for life was not nearly as important. And um, we have many instances in the United States of women being excluded from education and being excluded from jobs. So what Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem set out to do was actually very noble. They wanted women to have equal access to education, equal access to financial independence, equal access to jobs. But then they kind of went overboard. They decided that anything feminine was holding women back, and the greatest goal in life was to be like men. So if men had something, if men were something, then that was something for women to strive for. Just as an example of how expendable the feminist movement thought femininity was, is that they were very anti-marriage. I still remember the motto today, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. So this was something that anybody who grew up in my era had heard many, many times. And it was considered that children were a very big detriment. They would keep you back from getting a good education. They'd be keeping you back from getting a good financial base, from getting the kind of job you want, the job advancement that you wanted. And so they had many, many uh, methods of encouraging women to drop the idea that relationships with men had any value and that children had any value. In addition, partially because these women had been exposed to some form of American Judaism, they were very anti-Jewish. I would say somewhat anti-religious, but very anti-Jewish, meaning that anything that was involved with the gender roles in traditional Judaism was something that they went to town with. The fact that men and women sat separately in a synagogue, that women were not rabbis, that women did not have leading roles in the synagogue prayer services, this was considered to be absolutely unacceptable. And to make things worse, I don't know if either of these women could read any Hebrew and understand what they were reading, but they took the whole system of family purity, which goes into the idea that women and men are separated physically for a period of time every month, 
And they took the mistranslations of these words that were involved with this process to say women are not unclean, they're not taboo, it's a terrible thing that Judaism has these horrible, horrible uh, views of women, and we must right these terrible wrongs. So with that as background, I should add that I don't know if the women's movement hadn't happened if I would be standing in front of all of you today. Why? Because when I went to school, graduate school was equally open to men and women in my field of clinical psychology. A few years after I graduated, it was easy for me to become the chief psychologist of a hospital because women were able to fill job posts that formerly had been reserved for men. The more money a person made, the more status a job had, the less possibility there was prior to this of a woman being in that, in that position. So having said that, I'd like to talk about how different the perspectives of feminism were from those of traditional Judaism. In, in feminism, the goal was to be like a man. In Judaism, the goal is to be like God. The things that a person can do in Judaism, I don't want to say every Jew is created equal, because we see people have differences. Men and women are different, children and adults are different, some people are more intelligent, some less, some have more talents in one area than another, some people have certain challenges emotionally and, and physically. So we're not identical. But Judaism has a premise that every person has equal access to God. And because we were all created in a unique way with our individual differences, our individual challenges, our individual uh, positives, we were meant to embark on a life journey that will be different from the next person. So the idea of trying to imitate men is already cutting off our possibilities. Men and women have the same job in life. That is to be as godlike as possible. Because we were created different, we have some things in common as to how we are supposed to actualize ourselves. But we also have things that are custom-made for men and custom-made for women to help us achieve those other areas of self-actualization. Another thing I'd like to mention is that Judaism and the Western world have many other completely different premises. We often talk about someone in the Western world being a successful man or woman. When we say someone is successful, what are we referring to? Usually we're saying they have money or they have a job that has status, prestige, and makes money. In Judaism, work, jobs, money are simply neutral. They're a means to an end. The end for all of us is to try to achieve a close relationship with God and to improve ourselves and to perfect ourselves and the world spiritually. So the focus is not on what I have materially. That doesn't make me successful. And indeed, to a very, very large extent, once I make whatever normal efforts a person makes to have a job, to make money, the results are not up to me. The results are up to God. So whatever finances, material things we have are really a gift from God. So why should I feel successful if God has given me these presents? So the values that Judaism holds most dear, if we're going to say that the purpose of life is about getting access to God, creating intimacy with him, perfecting myself spiritually, perfecting the world spiritually, is various character traits that I meant to work with that usually take an entire lifetime to refine. So if I'm going to be a successful Jew, the values that I'm going to hold dear are humility. Another value I'm going to hold dear is modesty. Another value I'm going to hold dear is to take whatever resources God gives me and to use them for spiritual ends which means that let's say a person's making a million dollars a year. That's not what makes him or her successful. How much they're using that money to give to charity, how much they're investing that money in things that are spiritually beneficial to the world is what makes that person successful. So let's take this idea a little bit further. 
I spoke about the game plan for life in my talk, Journeys of the Soul, a few days ago. I'll just reiterate part of it here for those of you who weren't there. The rabbis asked the question, why did God make a world? God is a being who's totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He didn't need a world. Why did he put us here? And they came to the conclusion that God is a being who is all good. And the definition of all good for God means he's a total giver. So God determined to create a world with human beings in it so we could be the recipients of the goodness that God wants to create. Were God only to give us of this goodness on a silver platter without any effort on our parts, we would be eating what's called bread of shame. We'd feel like welfare recipients. So God gave us a desire to do what is not godly, to do what is invested in the material and the egocentric and the sensual as ends in themselves, and to ignore that there's a God in the world. He also gave us a part of himself, which we call his spiritual gene, so to speak, and we call that a soul. So God put both of these parts in us, a part that wants to do God's will and a part that doesn't want to do God's will, in a physical body where it would be challenged for its entire lifetime here on earth to do what God wants. Every time we invest ourselves in what's godly and immortal, eternal, we're building a, we're putting another building brick in that relationship of intimacy with God. Every time we work on our character traits to improve ourselves, to be more in line with the way God is, we're becoming successful. We're fulfilling the purpose for which we were put here. And so when we look in the Bible at Moses, who is... I think unarguably the greatest of all Jews. What does the Torah laud him for? What does the Torah say was Moses' greatest hallmark? Okay, it doesn't say he was president. It doesn't say he was a millionaire. It says he was the most humble man on earth. How many of you, when you're chatting with your friends, would say to your friends, you know what, I'm so proud of my son. He's so humble. How many of you would appreciate seeing headlines in the newspapers? Another humble man found in New York City. Right? It just doesn't make the papers. What we read about and what we put out there as making the mark or visibility, sometimes even notoriety, money, prestige, high education, and various kinds of social status. None of these things have any value in Jewish eyes. The only value they have is to the extent someone uses them for a higher purpose. So let's say a person is high up in the government and they use their position to make the world a more godly place, to better the lives of people, to give people an opportunity to express their potentials in a better way. Then their status is serving a wonderful purpose and they're being successful. But if a person simply has status, they simply are being flashed on the, on the pages of newspapers and the media, who cares? In Jewish eyes, that's not important. And so the goals that the feminists had for women to attain the same visibility as men, the same economic status, the same power that men had in, men's, in male ways was something that was totally irrelevant to Judaism except for the fact that many of the ways that the feminists urged women to find their voice was really at odds with Judaism. For example, the feminists said men are promiscuous. Why shouldn't women be just as promiscuous? So they traded a woman's, a woman's desire, which in Judaism is inherent in a woman's psyche, to find depth and connection and relationships for superficiality. This was not a good thing. They traded a woman's desire, which for many women, I would say, is close to innate. It certainly is culturally modified to a large degree to build a family, to have children, and totally threw that out the window, literally throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Because in their idea, it costs a lot of money to raise children. Women take off from work when they raise children. Of what value is it to have a family if the most important thing is to be successful in your career? 
And so three decades later, many women who had bought this whole story were now realizing their biological clocks were running out or had run out. And they looked back on their lives and felt a huge vacuum. So in Judaism, we have an idea that if God created men and women different, there must have been reasons for that. God did not want a unisex world. And we see throughout the Torah many examples of not only not wanting a unisex world, but not wanting a world where the things he created to be different were no longer different. For example, there are laws in the Torah that prohibit us from grafting species. You can eat a nectarine, but you're not supposed to graft a plum and a peach together to make them. Because the idea is that if God created these two separate species, each of them has value by themselves. We're not allowed to mate two species together and create hybrid animals. So you can take an ass and you can take a horse and you can breed them together and you get a donkey, which is a sterile animal, by the way. But in Jewish eyes, that's not something to be done. If somebody else does it, you can make use of it. But we're not supposed to blur those differences. When it comes to sowing fields, if a person has a crop of wheat and they have vineyards, you can't sow the crop of wheat within the vineyards. We have to keep those fields separate. There are many instances of not mixing kinds. Another instance would be we don't mix milk and meat. We don't mix wool and flax. It's called shotnays. When God made the world, there were certain things he wanted us to work with, to purify, to refine. But blurring all of these differences was not one of the things that was in his target uh, goals. And so if God made women and men differently, what are some of the things that were intended for us to achieve differently and or to contribute to the other sex what the other sex might lack. So first of all, one of the things that is very much valued in the secular world is visibility. In Judaism, humility and modesty are considered very important values. From the feminist point of view, for a woman to be modest is one of the worst things she can possibly do. Because, as we all know the expression, if you've got it, flaunt it. Judaism says that what's superficial is just hiding what's within. So why flaunt what's superficial? If God gave one person one set of contours and somebody else a different set of contours, why is that something to be proud of? Why is that something to run around showing off to the world? And so Judaism has uh, an idea that God created women to bring modesty into the world. Modesty doesn't mean poor self-esteem. Modesty means hiding what's superficial so that which is essential and hidden can be brought to the fore. That women can be appreciated for their minds and their ideas and their emotions and whatever other abilities they have without their bodies being so distracting that everything else becomes obscured. Same idea for men. Humility is a value for men. Not that necessarily everybody does it. Arrogance today seems to be the rule of the day and has been for many, many centuries. But in Jewish thinking, let's go back to these things that the feminists wanted to give to women. You go into a synagogue, and I'll talk more about why the synagogue has the separate seating. But if you go into a synagogue, the first thing you notice is men are taking center stage. But if you look closely in an orthodox synagogue, what you'll notice is all of those things that the feminists were clamoring for women to do are not there to aggrandize men. For example, I don't know that any women, any feminists at least, have been clamoring for women to get circumcised. All they want are those things that are showing a certain, in their eyes, visibility, a certain status. But the idea of things that bring us into closer connection with God that are internal and private are not on their agenda. So when they go into a synagogue, who do they see standing up in front? They see either the rabbi or they see someone who's leading the congregation in prayer. Now, I'm not going to say that there aren't people who lead the congregation in prayer whose egos are filling the room. 
But ideally, in the Jewish world, that's not supposed to be that way. That person is supposed to be very humble and realize he's an emissary to God of the congregation. And in fact, I mentioned in one of my talks earlier that for the high holidays, such a person is supposed to be married and have children so that he can really appreciate what compassion's all about. Because he's standing up there and with all of his heart and soul, he's praying for God's compassion to encompass the people that he's representing. If you ever notice when people in a traditional synagogue get called for an aliyah, it's not so the man can be on the front pages of the New York Times. Many men who go up will take their talit and they'll cover their heads and you won't even see who they are because they recognize that the closer they get to God, the more need there is for humility. When we had a temple, the people that served in the temple were men and they had many different categories. The highest category, if you will, was to be the high priest. All of the other priests were four garments, including a robe that went down to their ankles. Why? Because when they would walk up to the altar, their robe would be a little bit displaced, and it was considered inappropriate for a man's leg to be showing when he's in the service of God. The high priest had to wear eight clothes, and you know what these clothes did to him? He had a turban on his head that was, I think, 54 feet long. Imagine wrapping a turban 54 feet long around your head. It gets pretty heavy. What was this turban telling him? It was saying, don't let your head get too big, buddy. God is above you. And then he had a plate across his forehead. Forehead symbolizes arrogance, right? Affrontery, arrogance. The, the plate said, Kodesh Lashem, holy to God. He was wearing reminders in every part of his garments. You as an individual are not important. You as a servant of God are all important. He wore a tunic with a breastplate over it that represented all of the Jewish tribes. He's carrying his brothers on his chest. He's not there for them to adulate him. He's there to represent them to God. He's wearing breeches, again, because modesty is so important, both for men and for women. And in case the message got lost along the way, he's also wearing a, like, it's like a cummerbund around his waist, which I think was also 54 feet long. And no matter where he walked, he felt this bulge around his middle. Every part of his garments were reminding him, you are here for one purpose and one purpose only. You are here to be in close connection with God, to bring his connection to your Jewish brethren. And so when people look at the people standing in a synagogue and see only that they're of the male sex on one side of the barrier, the mechitza, they're missing the point of why the men are there in the first place. So besides the values of modesty and humility that are so important in Judaism, the whole purpose for which there's a minion is something the feminists completely missed out on. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Most of the time feminists say, you know, it's such a terrible thing. I went to this synagogue and there were nine men and I showed up and I had to say Kaddish. And I couldn't say Kaddish because they said I didn't count. It's terrible. But let's understand the deeper meaning of a minion. We read in the Torah that the Jews were supposed to go into the promised land. They'd received the Torah from God. They left Egypt not that long before. Before going into the land of Egypt, there were a number of men who insisted that they delegate one prince from each tribe to go and spy out the land of Israel. Moses thought that their plan was to create, uh, to, to reconnoiter how would be the best way to conquer the land so that they could feel it wasn't just coming from God, but they were partners with God in this endeavor. So God said to Moses, fine, let them go. They want to go. You want them to go? Let them go. When these 12 
men came back because there was one prince for each tribe. They come in front of the Jewish people, which at that point numbered about two and a half to three million people, and said, whoa, we don't want to go into that land. We can't conquer it. There are giants there. We can't conquer it. It's terrible there. It's got weird fruit. We want to stay here in the desert. There were 10 of these 12 men who brought back this terrible, slanderous report about the land of Israel. Only two of them had a different voice. One was named Joshua. The other was named Kalev. And they tried to still the people and said, no, no, if God says this is good, it must be good. Let's go. We can conquer it. And they were horribly overruled. There was such a ruckus. The men were clamoring not to go into the land. God said, have it your way. You don't want to go? I'm not going to make you go. You'll spend the next 38 years here in the desert, and you'll die in the desert. If this is where you want to be, gay is unto hate. Stay here. The women never bought into this. The women did want to go into the land of Israel. The women did believe in God's promise. But since their husbands were destined to die in the desert, their fate was that they would be in the desert for the next 38 years until it was time to go into the land of Israel when all of the women except for Miriam did go into the land. In the future, a bunch of rabbis got together and said, you know what? When a bunch of men get together, they cause trouble. How many men caused trouble? Ten. There's a mitzvah in the Torah that God says, V'nikdashti betoch adat b'nei Israel." I should be sanctified among the congregation of the Jewish people. Where it speaks about the ten men who are an evil congregation who slandered the land of Israel, how many men constituted an edah, a congregation? Ten. So the rabbi said, if sanctifying God needs a minimum of ten men, let's rectify the mess that men made a long time ago. And let's rectify the possibility that when they get together, they're going to talk about politics and sports instead of getting involved with more ennobling topics. I forgot money. And we're going to give them an opportunity on a regular basis to sanctify God. And this, my friends, is the origin of Minion. Not that women were too stupid or too frivolous or too unimportant to count. We weren't involved with the problem that had to be fixed. If 10 men get together, a woman can come and she can enjoy the benefits of God's presence being drawn into the world by the power of those 10 men praying together or those 10 men sanctifying God's name. But she cannot be counted in a minion because this has nothing to do with her. So next time you hear people talking about how terrible it is that these Orthodox don't count women in a minion, you'll know the real reason for that. Let's go a little bit further. If we ask, what is the purpose of life in the secular world? Maybe some of you would tell me, to have a good life. What does a good life mean? Usually it's about ease, comfort, pleasure, having as much things materially and bank accounts as you could possibly want. Again, these are not Jewish values. The Jewish values are, what's a good life? To take all of the spiritual opportunities that I've had presented to me and that I can grab onto and to make the most of them, given who I am. And so the spiritual opportunities in life are very different for a man than a woman. Let's go back to the temple for a few minutes just to illustrate that in a sense the temple was a microcosm of the Jewish world. We spoke about the high priest. He had a very high position among the Jews for the purpose of bringing God's presence into the Jewish world, for the purpose of helping the Jewish people connect to their creator. But there were many other kinds of people who served in the temple as well. For example, among the priests themselves, there was a division of priests in the time that we had a sanctuary in the desert. Some of this family of priests 
have what you would consider the high-status jobs. They were the ones that carried the menorah, that illuminated the world spiritually. They carried the golden altar. They carried the table that was overlaid with gold that had bread on it, that represented material blessing in the world. We would call that a great job. There was another group of people that carried the heavy stuff, the pillars, the sockets, the things that would make them trip and fall as they were going. People would call them the shlemiels. How many of you would rather do a job of heavy labor than a job where you're standing and just in communion with God? In God's eyes, all of these were necessary. He didn't say, just do the high-status jobs and the low-status jobs give to somebody else. This was a person's designation. And interestingly, the family that had what we might call the low-status job of carrying the things that didn't have the glory and the honor but were necessary for the infrastructure of the tabernacle, their family name was Merari. Merari means bitter. Very often, a person can have a life where it seems that things are difficult, they're hard, they don't have a lot of status. God's saying these people are just as precious and just as necessary in my world as those people who are standing up in the Holy of Holies once a year, representing the entire Jewish people. And so when we look at the roles of men and women, we can't look with Western eyes and say this is high status and this is low status. By the way, if we were going to be really objective, I remember meeting the guy that developed IVF. Right? Louise Brown was his baby, so to speak, in the test tube. He happens to be an Orthodox Jew, by the way. Very interesting man. He got a Nobel Prize for creating life in a test tube. How come every mother doesn't get a Nobel Prize for creating life in her body? I think that's far more amazing and far more miraculous You know what the answer is? Because in our secular world, if a woman can do it, how great could it be? When we look with Jewish eyes at the miracle of birth, the miracle of motherhood, the miracle of being able to take DNA and turn it into a live human being, mold that person's character for the rest of their lives, that to me is monumental. It needs to be given more credit, not less credit. With the women's movement, we unfortunately saw an unprecedented rate of divorce, an unprecedented disintegration of the family, and only now, 40 years later, are people beginning to appreciate the centrality of motherhood, the centrality of women investing time, raising their kids, holding their families together and the tremendous effect it has on society. So maybe Judaism knew a little bit more about the effects of femininity than the feminists gave credit for. When it comes to differences between men and women, we have 613 mitzvot in the Torah. I spoke in my love and intimacy talk about what a mitzvah really is. In short, a mitzvah is a commandment, it is something that we are supposed to do, but it's much more than that. A mitzvah comes from the root sabta, which means, or tzav, which means to attach. Our purpose in life is to find ways to attach our minds, our hearts, our bodies, and our feelings to our creator, to bring heaven into earth. So since we wouldn't know how to do this if God didn't give us a GPS, he gave us a GPS. There's 613 elements to it. Some of these ways that we bring God out in the world are using our intellect. Some are using one part of our body, some a different part of our body. Some are emotional. Some of them are using our power of speech or our power of thought. The most intense, intimate relationship we could have with a person is one in, where we bring our, in which we bring our entire being into the relationship. And that's the purpose of Torah, to bring our entire beings and the world around us into a constant relationship with God. And so out of these 613 mitzvot, 
there are some that are reserved for priests to do. There are some that are reserved for a king to do because they have very special missions because they have very special situations. There are some that are meant for women only. There are some that are meant for men only. The idea that I should take over somebody else's mitzvah is almost as ludicrous as having a football game where the linebacker decides to be the quarterback. Both are necessary, but we have to know whose job is who at the right time. So whatever mitzvot women were meant to have to actualize their spiritual potentials, we have in our basket. We know what those mitzvot are. We know what the possibilities are of how to, to, uh, to do those mitzvot. We can bring our individuality to those mitzvot to some degree as well. For example, if I have an obligation, as a man does if he makes bread, to take off a certain amount of the bread and to give it to the priest in a time when we have a temple. That's my obligation. I can do it in a rote way. I can do it in a way where I think about, I meditate on what I'm about to do, the meaning of this mitzvah. I can think about what it means to be materially blessed. I can appreciate and feel gratitude and say a prayer before I begin to do this mitzvah. So we bring our individuality into doing mitzvot in many different ways that really, really we have enough mitzvot, each of us, to do without having to usurp those mitzvot that belong to somebody else. When it comes to women's mitzvot, we have three specific mitzvot that are considered to be a woman's mitzvah. One of them is lighting Shabbat candles, which, by the way, if a man lives alone, he's supposed to light Shabbat candles. But if he's in a woman's home, she has preference. What's the idea of lighting these candles? We go back to the time of Sarah, our foremother Sarah, who lived roughly 4,000 years ago. And there's a midrash that tells us that Sarah had three blessings in her home all of the time. One of the blessings is that her Shabbat candles burned from Friday night to Friday night. A second is that when she made bread, there was such a blessing in her dough that it was always blessed. Today, a woman's mitzvah, as I mentioned a moment ago, it also applies to a man if he's the one who's making the dough, is to take off a piece of the, of the dough, which we call the challah, and to give it to a priest who's in a state of ritual holiness. Today, we don't give it away because there are no such priests today, so today we destroy it. What's the idea of having blessing in the dough? What's the idea of having candles burning the entire week? I'm not sure I would tell the fire department about that one. The last part of the story is that Sarah's tent, it always had the divine presence hovering above it. So the rabbis explained to us that when Sarah would look at a mitzvah, when she would do a mitzvah, it wasn't a matter of numbers. Whatever mitzvah she had, she was so excited about doing. She was so joyous to bring spiritual illumination into the world that her level of spiritual connection to God did not wax and wane during the week. The pinnacle that she reached on Friday to embrace Shabbat, to bring the holiness of the Sabbath into this world was so great that when Shabbat was over Saturday night, she didn't want to reduce that. She wanted to stay on that spiritual high the entire week. And so she did. In whatever mitzvot she performed, she brought that same level of excitement and joy into the doing of a mitzvah. The idea that her bread always had blessing in it means that whatever she saw in the physical world, she thought about, what am I going to do with this? to take its spiritual sparks and elevate them? How is this physical thing meant to be used to bring God into the world in a greater way? If there was food in her house, she would give it to people who were wayfarers, to do what's called hachnasat orchim, hospitality to guests. She would serve it to people and explain to them, this isn't from me. There's a creator of the world, and it's our obligation to appreciate that he gave this to us. 
to thank him before we eat and after we eat as a sign of that gratitude. And finally, if a person lives with such a total awareness of God, what better place does God want to be than in that person's home? And so what Sarah did in her home, we're taught by Ramban, Nachmanides, who lived in 13th century Spain. When God asked the Jews to make him a sanctuary, the sanctuary brought back into the sanctuary what Sarah always had in her home. In the sanctuary, we had the menorah, the candelabra that brought spiritual light back into the world. We had a table of showbread that showed the world that the blessing in spirit and physical things is to use for spiritual sustenance, to use for spiritual ends. And we saw that when the Jews finished building this sanctuary, God's presence rested on the sanctuary. Today, we don't have a sanctuary and we don't have a temple. But every Jewish woman can bring these three elements back into her home so that her home becomes a mini temple. How does she do this? By lighting Shabbat candles, by making bread and taking off challah and dedicating her material blessing to God and the people who serve him. Our tables, when we have a Shabbat meal, are like the altar. We put that bread on that table. And when we eat a meal in a sense of sanctity, we're fulfilling the purpose for which that food was created. We're using it to give us the energy to connect ourselves with our creator. And so on a qualitative level, women can take mitzvot and can achieve exactly the same things with mitzvot of gaining access to God that a man can achieve with his mitzvot. A woman doesn't need to wear tefillin, which a man does need to, to, to wear. A man needs to wear tefillin because he tends to be very attuned to superficiality, to the allures of the external world. His eyes can go in the wrong places. What women really want in relationships is connection, not superficiality. A man needs extra protections to make sure that his thoughts and his mind and his eyes stay in the right places. And for women who complain, why do the women have to take responsibility for dressing modestly, let the men take care of themselves? This is one way that the men are supposed to take care of themselves to make sure that their eyes and their hearts and their minds don't go straying after the wrong things. I want to talk about another issue that feminists are very disturbed about in Judaism, and that's power. According to the feminists, men have all the power. They're the rabbis, they're the rabbinical judges, they're the ones that run the prayer services. They've got it all, and what are women? Nothing. Well, let's take a closer look at this. First of all, the idea in Judaism of power is divisible into two. In the real world, we have two different kinds of very potent power. One is what I'll call external power, and one is what I call internal power. If you ask the question, who's probably the most powerful man in the world right now, what do you say? Obama. He has the ability to ruin the world in a very short period of time. That's a certain kind of power. He has the ability to affect our lives in many different ways by a stroke of the pen. That's a lot of power. If I ask all of you, who is the person who influenced you the most? What were you going to tell me? I can't hear you. The Rebbe? Okay. Who else? Parents. Okay, I can promise you as a therapist, I've made a career off the fact that mothers influence their kids more than anybody else, for better or for worse. So when we talk about power, God has largely given over to women an enormous amount of power. We can create life. We can mold life. We can mold the morality and the personalities of our children and our spouses. A woman can use that power for good purposes or for bad purposes, and we see both things happening all the time. 
So there is a balance of power in the world. Men have more power in the external world, which is what the secular world values, and women have far more power in the internal world. Both of them are necessary. I don't want to say one is more important than the other, but I will hazard a guess that in the end of the day, the power that mothers have over their children has molded the world far more than that of the president of a country. I want to just go back before I stop to this issue of the 613 mitzvot. The, the fact of the matter is that mitzvot are divided to things that we all have to do. Both men and women have to keep Shabbat. Both men and women have to keep kosher. Both men and women have to fast on Yom Kippur. Both men and women have all kinds of mitzvot of observances that occur during the Jewish holidays. We both are, are required to give tzedakah, charity. But let's talk about two other things. There are some mitzvot that devolve only upon men, such as wearing tefillin, and some mitzvot that devolve only upon women, such as going to the mikvah and observing the laws of family holiness. A man can't go to the mikvah in lieu of his wife. It's a mitzvah that only she can do. But I remember when I was a kid, we were trying to figure out how much time a day we had to devote to God. Got a 24-hour day, let's say you sleep eight hours. If you're Jewish, you eat at least five hours. Right? So you've got a few hours left to do things. Maybe the mitzvot that are left take 20 minutes, half an hour. You should pray. You should do a little bit of Torah study. There's plenty of time that's left over. A man has an ongoing obligation to learn Torah in his free time. A woman does not. A woman is left with the option of how she's going to use her free time. This is what's called in Hebrew, divrei reshut. God gives women what's called bina, an intuition to know how I should be spending my time at this moment. And unfortunately for some ladies, usually how to spend that time is not watching soap operas and uh, doing mindless things. Right now, does someone in my family need something? Does someone in the community need something? Do I need to be doing something for my own self-growth? God gives women a lot more leeway to decide what we need to be doing at any given moment than men. Men's lives are much more structured than women in this way. In any event, the fact that a woman is not obligated to do certain things doesn't mean she's not important. The fact that a CEO doesn't have a whole plan of every day, every moment, what he's supposed to be doing doesn't mean he's not important. It means he's assumed to have more discretion by understanding what the whole picture is supposed to look like to know what needs to be done moment by moment. I'd like to just uh, draw things to a close. When the reform movement abolished keeping Shabbat, keeping the Jewish holidays, keeping kosher, all of these many mitzvot that applied to Jews, from the time the Torah was given 3,300 years ago. What was the one thing they kept? Praying in a synagogue. So in many eyes of secular or reformed Jews, what is the most important thing that a Jew does to identify as being Jewish? Praying in a synagogue. Therefore, if women are not visible in the synagogue, it means they don't count. If women don't get aliyot in the synagogue, it means they don't count. But in traditional Judaism, the synagogue is not the most important thing. Having a synagogue, in fact, is a rabbinic commandment. It's not even from the Torah. There's no Torah commandment that says you shall have synagogues in your communities. Is there an obligation to pray? Yes, both men and women are obligated to pray. But the idea of a man being in a minion and, and praying in a synagogue, that's something that developed much, much later. And so what we see is that because reform took away everything that was beautiful and essential about the woman's role in this world and the centrality of the Jewish home, the only thing they were left with to point fingers at is men have the central roles in the synagogue. My friends, that's a fraction of life. I have yet to have a patient come to me and say my life was ruined because men, men pray in the synagogue an hour a day. What goes on the other 23 hours 
is very, very important. In fact, it's brought down in the code of Jewish law that if a community has only enough money for either a ritual bath or a synagogue, you know what they have to build? A ritual bath, a mikvah. Because family life and the holiness of family life in traditional Judaism is paramount. Synagogue is secondary. So when we look at the different roles of men and women, let's not make the mistake that has been made in the Western world of denigrating everything that's essentially feminine, everything that's essentially not visible, everything that is essentially non-materialistic, and appreciate that in God's world, our job is to bring holiness here. And if God told us this is the track that we can use to make a life holy, we shouldn't second-guess God. Reformed Judaism began in Germany in the mid-1800s. The Reformed Jews abolished traditional Judaism for the first time in history. There never was such a movement. There were people who didn't keep the Torah, but there was never a movement to say the Torah wasn't given by God. In fact, it's fascinating. Jewish across the board, you might not keep the Torah, but you knew it was given by God. Josephus wrote about this 2,000 years ago, that every Jewish child imbibes with his mother's milk the knowledge that the Torah was given by God. The Christians agree with that. The Christians never had the audacity to come along and say, God didn't give you the Torah. That's a figment of your imagination. They knew God gave us the Torah, so what did they invent? Well, you didn't keep it properly, so now we're the new Jews. And we decided that God made a mistake, and he gave you the Torah, and you guys didn't do what you were supposed to do, so now he gave us another one to replace the one that he gave before. But even the Christians didn't have the audacity to say, God didn't give us the Torah. And by the way, the Muslims also accept that God gave the Jews the Torah. They just rewrote sections of it to accord with their own theology. For example, in, in the Quran, who, takes, who does Abraham take as a sacrifice? Ishmael. So even the Muslims didn't have the audacity to say God didn't give the Jews the Torah. They just claimed that we didn't write it properly. It wasn't until reform came along in the 19th century that people had the, the chutzpah to say for the first time, God didn't give the Torah. It was divinely inspired, which means that man can do with it whatever he wants. And we decided that we want to be Jews in the synagogue and Germans on the street. We have no need for these archaic laws anymore. And by the way, this has happened ever since. Within two generations, they really had no need for these laws because their descendants were no longer Jewish. We're going to have to end our session. If anybody's interested in reading up more about this, it's in my book, To Be a Jewish Woman, which is with the books that are in the back.